All right, so let's, let's read our verses, starting in chapter 19, verse 11. Now, the context here is that Zacharias, we've just had he, he, the story of Zacharias is just before this in verses 1 to 10, ends with the Lord saying that he has come to seek and save the lost. And then after our verses is the triumphal entry and then uh, Jesus cleansing the temple. So just to give you a little bit of the, the context of this chapter. But let's start in verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went out to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. He called ten of his slaves, and he gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him, so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mita has made ten mitas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be, be in authority over ten cities. The second came, uh, saying, Your mita, master, has made five minas. And he said to him, Also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mita, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down, and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mita away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So let's pray. Father, we come to you with thanksgiving that you are not silent, that you do speak. You want us to know your heart, your will. You want us to know you in Christ. And so we ask for your wisdom as we look at your word now to listen, to allow you to work in all of our hearts what only you can do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your presence in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just interesting background with this. Historically, we know that when King Herod died, about A.D., it was about 3, maybe, uh, B.C., actually, about 3 B.C., that um, he, was, uh, he left the, the kingdom to his son, uh, Archelaus. But the, the Jews didn't want Archelaus to be king. So they actually sent... A delegation, Archelaus had to go to Rome to have the inheritance approved by Caesar. So the Jews sent a delegation of 50 men to contest it. And uh, the, the, so Caesar did give him the kingdom, but would not give him the title king. 
So this is kind of on their mind. They, they, would, they would recognize this as he's, uh, as he's telling this, giving this parable. So it would hit home with them and what he's trying to communicate. First of all, we see with uh, the nobleman's will for his slaves. He's clear what he wants his slaves to do. And he says he wants them to do business in verse 13, which means uh, to be busy, to be busy with oneself. Um, it made me think right away of James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So the one who is living by faith in Christ is not a lazy person, but an active person. And so we're, we're to be busy. But we see in this parable that all ten of these slaves were, they were to be busy, but they were to be busy with what they had been given. And what was it they were given? All ten were given the same amount. That not one given more than another, but they were all given the same amount, regardless of who they were. And that reminded me of Acts 2, verse 3, on the day of Pentecost, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. There was not one believer there that was exempt. There was not one that was given more than the other. The passage tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We know in Colossians 2 verse 10 that at conversion, the believer has been made complete in Christ. So his, all of his life, we are filled with all that he is. I remember once Major Thomas was uh, preaching at his hill for one of our Thanksgiving conferences. And I was uh, sitting there listening to him. I had, I had heard him for many times before. But I remember just sitting there at the end of the week. He was in his last session, and he was wrapping things up. Uh, and I just was really challenged by what he had to say that week. And I remember just praying silently, you know, Lord, I want to live the same kind of life this man lives. And the Lord just clearly spoke to my heart and said, then do it. I haven't given him any more of me than I've given to you. So live the life that you've been given. Hebrews 13.7 says this, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. You know, we have people in our lives who are spiritual giants. And the reason they are is because of their, their faith in Christ. And the writer here is telling us to imitate the faith, not so caught up in being like them, doing things the way they do things, but to imitate their faith, a complete dependence on Christ. Any thoughts before I go to the next point? Well, that's very good. I mean, you would have the tendency to imitate them. Right. Right. That's not what his, his faith compelled him to do a certain thing. Right. Yeah, we tend, to, we tend to see the actions and the results and say those are the things I need to imitate. That's right. why we've seen the, like the seeker church and the, these different yeah. things that have 
exploded because well they did this thing and it was successful. We should do the same thing. Like, no, let's 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 seek, you know, let's let's be faithful and move according to faith in, in him and let him be the one to direct. Right. Because if everybody decided to be a major Thomas, there'd know, be nobody to preach to. There'd be a lot of, a lot of <laughs> there'd be a lot of things lacking, you know. Yeah. Right. Okay, so the next thing I see is uh, verses 15 to 19. We see the faithful slaves. And the word faithful found in verse 17. And he, he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be authority over ten cities. The word faithful means, simply means reliable. Now, the same word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and there it's translated as being trustworthy. I have it here on the screen. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. These are trustworthy slaves. I came across a story, instead of trying to just summarize it. I thought, well, I'll just read it. It's just a couple of paragraphs. It goes like this. The time was the 19th of, uh, 19th of May, 1780. The place was Hartford, Connecticut, and the day was, has gone down in New England history as a terrible foretaste of the Judgment Day. For at noon, the skies turned from blue to gray, and by mid-afternoon mid had blackened over so densely so densely that in the, this religious age, men fell on their knees and begged a final blessing before the end came. The Connecticut House of Representatives was in session, and as some men fell down and others clamored for an immediate adjournment, the Speaker of the House, who was Colonel Davenport, said, uh, came to his feet and he silenced them and he said these words, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. I, I appreciate this because the, the thought is, you know, he's not preaching. He's not this pastor. He's not a missionary. He's a representative in the state house. But he sees this as his ministry. His ministry of what? Being faithful before the Lord, going about what the Lord has placed before him. And he wants to what? He wants to trust the Lord and be found what? Who wants to be found trustworthy. He wants to be found faithful. A good slave, a good servant. Any thoughts? Okay. Well, I am going to talk about it, but okay. but if you want to say something now, go ahead. Good. Okay, so we've looked at the faithful servant. Let's take a look at the unfaithful slave. In verses twenty to twenty-six, he is afraid. He uh, hides the money away so that he makes sure he has the money to give back. When the master returns, master is not happy about it takes it away from him and gives it to the one who had, uh, who had been uh, faithful 
and, uh, and now being given 10 cities to be in charge of. And we see that in it being taken away from him is that he's suffering loss, but he still lives in contrast to the unfaithful or in, con in contrast to those that didn't want anything to do with uh, the, the master becoming a king. So he lives. Someone once said this, if we do not use the gifts God gives us under his direction, why should we even have them? Somebody else can make better use of the gifts to the glory of God. Let's turn to Luke chapter 8. So back just a few pages. Chapter 8, beginning in verse 16. And I'll read verses 16 to 18. Luke 8, 16. It reads like this. Now, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it over with a container or puts it under a bed. But he puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nothing secret that will not be made known and come to light. So take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be given away, shall be taken away from him, even what he thinks he has. When Paul and I were young boys, uh, my dad gave us a shotgun. Uh, it was our first gun. It was a gun to share. And uh, I remember when he gave it to us, we were on my grandpa's ranch out in East Texas, and we were out there, um, you know, shooting it. Dad showing us how to use the gun, and we had a lot of fun with the gun, and we both were, you know, excited over having the gun. And uh, we used it a lot that week, you know, just enjoyed it. Then we got home and we hung it on the gun rack in the study and we thought that was really cool. We've got a gun up on the wall like that and it just stayed there. We never used it again. I remember one day after school walking into the study, looking up at the wall and the gun was gone. Paul didn't know what would happen to it either. So we asked Dad, Dad, the gun's not there. And he says, I know it's not there. I sold it. I said, what? You sold our gun? He said, well, you're not, you're not using it. So I sold it to somebody that would use it. We were content just owning the gun. We were content that it was ours. Never used it. Didn't have a real big interest in using it. We were content with that. And then one day we found out that what we thought was ours and we owned was not even ours. It still belonged to my dad. He had simply given us use of it. And then he took it away from us because we wouldn't use it. Charles Spurgeon said this, it is always so that the gracious and faithful man obtains more grace and more means of usefulness while the unfaithful man sinks lower and lower and grows worse and worse. We must either make progress or else lose what we have attained. There is no such thing as standing still in religion. I think about the nation of Israel, how they were rescued, they were saved from slavery in Egypt, and how all but two never experienced the whole reason for their salvation. They were saved that they might enter into the land, Hebrews calls it, 
the land of rest. And though they were saved, they never knew the rest. Now, they didn't lose their salvation in that they were never to go back to Egypt again. They were never sent back to Egypt. But they were saved. This passage reads like this in Numbers 14, verse 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them. This was after the 12 spies go in. The 10 come back with a bad report. The two say, nope, God's given it to us. Let's go in. And the nation believes the 10 bad spies. And he says, I've pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. They are pardoned, but they will not see what they were saved for. They will not know the rest. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In this chapter, uh, Paul is fired up. He's upset with the church because they're not, though they are saints, though they, have, uh, though they are saved, uh, in chapter 3, he, he gets on to them because they're not living and maturing as they should be. He says in, um, oh, I'm in 2 Corinthians. Hang on, let me get to the right chapter, right book. So again, they are saints. They are sanctified according to chapter 1, verse 2. Beginning in verse th chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not yet able. Verse 3, For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? And then we jump down to verse 10, and we read, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we see that the unfaithful slave who takes what has been given to him by the master, who's supposed to be at work, be at, he's supposed to be busy with what he's been given, but he's not, he hides it away. He suffers loss. It's taken away from him. It's given to the one that is faithful because to him who has much, much more will be given. 
But we see, though he suffers loss, he's not like the enemy, which we're going to look at next. He's not like the enemy of Christ. Uh, he still lives. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, we are. Which means we're, we're completely self-dependent. Yeah. We have all we need yeah. to be used by him to do all that he wants to do for us, but we're not allowing him to use us. And it speaks to how you see God in our faith, that he is alive. So the same way that we can't stop time, live on Sunday morning the rest of our life. Like our, our, our life continues forward and the Lord inevitably follows us with that. But it's that as we don't exercise that faith and that, call it stagnating or, or a bunch of other different things, it really is living from what happened at some point in the past. Instead of recognizing, it's not, well, I wonder if the Lord's going to speak to me. Like he is, he cannot help but be alive and active. So it's, am I yielding to what he is revealing? Mm. And and I think especially in that, what standard am I holding the Lord to? Like, well, no, you can't speak to me in washing dishes. Because, like, that's really boring. Like, I need your revelation to me to be in these ways that impress me. I don't want it to be in the responsibilities that I have, because I'm kind of tired of them. And, and instead yielding to that, to the idea of if everyone set out to be a major Thomas, like, Andrew Thomas didn't set out to be what he became. Like, that was the consequence of his obedience to the Lord. But he himself, like, when you spoke to him, he wasn't, he didn't go around being like, man, I'm amazing. Like, I'm jealous of you because you get to look at me. It wasn't, it wasn't that. But he was sharing Jesus. Yeah. And we, we received that and we were blessed by it because he didn't restrict that life. We, we saw Jesus and not Major Thomas. That, that was the part that, that was a blessing. Agreed. Anybody else? Okay, then let's move on. In verse 21 of our passage, we start to look at the unfaithful uh, slave and just what was his problem. In verse 21, he says, For I was afraid of you. Now, we are to fear the Lord, but this is the wrong fear. Bob Utley said this, Paralyzing fear is not a motive for effective service. Now, we, who proclaim to be believers in Christ, are the only people in the world who can freely be active and move and engaged in things without any fear. We're the only ones who can do that. And if we're living by faith, I believe we will. Also, the word afraid here is interesting. It means to put to flight, to terrify, or to frighten. Now with that, Tozer once said, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low or unworthy con conception of God. 
And just to build on that a little more, another man by the name of Steve Evans, I really don't know that much about him, but I like the quote, so I put it up here. And he said this, The wrong kind of fear of God will eat your lunch. It is the true playground bully who robs every believer that he can of, of the peace and joy of knowing we are being watched over by an ever-loving God. This demon-inspired fear makes Christians afraid of what God might do, or of what he might allow, or of what he might ask of them. Consequently, they try to stay within the moral boundaries because of their fear of punishment, but they rarely draw close to him in complete surrender and submission because of their distorted fears about God. James chapter 4, verse 5 says this, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And sometimes we, we miss this, that Pride is not necessarily, though it is, but it's not exclusively just being this horrible person. But sometimes and often, pride is shown in, by the believer in, in what we were talking about just a second ago. Trusting ourselves to be like Jesus and studying trusting Jesus to be who he is. And so in verse 8 of chapter 4 in James, he says this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. The believer should have a healthy fear of God, that encourages one toward wisdom. Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I have a lot of quotes for this particular point. The next one is this, that the true fear of God always results in obedience and not self-preservation. I'm thinking of Abraham and Moses, Isaiah, John on the Isle of Patmos, you know, where the one who was called the beloved or the beloved, you know, we'd say the best friend, the closest one. When he's walking on the beach, he hears the sound of the voice, turns around to see who's talking. He sees that it's Jesus and the beloved it says in Revelation, drops to the ground like a dead man. You know, a a healthy fear of the Lord results in a victorious life. And then, again, Tozer, many call themselves by the name of Christ, talk much about God, and pray to Him sometimes, but evidently do not know who He is. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14, 27, but 
This healing fear is today hardly found among Christian men. Again, Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. Any thoughts about the fear of God? Are the wrong fear, Porter? Terrifying thing, yeah. In chapter ten, yeah, and that and that is in reference to deliberate disobedience, rebellion. Yeah, yeah. What I find interesting about this particular part is the fear was based on the fact that they knew that he reaped where he didn't sow. So it's an accusation. I mean, it's an accusation hmm. against false fear or pretended fear or not recognizing that really, you know, what they should have seen was, well, if God is one who, who expects to reap what he didn't sow, then they should be going to every person and trying to bring that back to God. Hmm. Right? That's interesting. And that's not what they were doing. Right. Because I think these two stories are obviously connected. Right. right? Because, I, I agree. Because yeah. uh, as they were listening to this, he went on. To right. He's her. building on so it. So there's yeah. a connection there. Yeah. And so I'm trying to see, okay, where's the connection? And I thought your question was good, Jeff, about, about the people, the subjects that hated him and would send a delegation. Well, I think that's what he talks about next. Right. Right? There's right. the 10 that he had given minus. He only mentions three. Right of the ten, but then he goes on to talk about the delegation who had been sent afterwards, who were basically opposing the master, who are the opposition to God himself, right? right. That's the opposition yes. to God himself. And I think what he's accusing these guys of, the Pharisees in this particular story, is being the opposition. Mm. Not being the one who doesn't, uh, maybe both, mm. you know? Uh, I, anyway, I find it interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up. Yeah. Is. Yeah. Todd? What you fear is ultimately what you worship because you what you fear is what you believe gives or can take away life from you. Mm-hmm. And I'd say fear of God without the gospel is something corrosive in and of itself because it, it, it doesn't include Christ as Savior but myself as Savior. And um, it's fear of God without the gospel. Good. Yes. I just think also that the, with the right conception of God, the fear of God removes the fear of death, which is what all of us And that's just taking place. Yeah. We're the only people that can proceed without fear. Right. Yeah. I, I'm probably, I'm not going to go there. Anyway. <laughs> um, but yes, I agree, Jack. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the enemy in verses 14 and 27. In verse 14, uh, but his citizens hated him, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then in verse 27, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Okay, 
there are consequences for the decisions that we make. We don't always uh, want those consequences or even think that's fair. Uh, now, this by far is not the norm for the His Hill student. I want to preface that before I say this. Uh, but every once in a while, you know, we get a stinker. And uh, years ago, when I, was, uh, when I was the dean there, I had to deal with, with one in particular. And he had a very unhealthy infatuation with one of our female students. And uh, to the point, I mean, I, I, I want to tell you the whole thing, but just don't have time. So I'm just going to break it down. It was to the point that it was debilitating for her. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. She came to talk to me. She, was, uh, she wasn't sleeping at night because she was so upset over what was happening. And she was, uh, she was getting sick. And she told me, Kelly, if it doesn't stop, I'm, I'm going to have to go home. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a dad of daughters. Well, the, the, just the, the daughter daddy in me just exploded. I couldn't believe this was happening to one of our girls. And I ran out of my office to find the student. Uh, and I looked at him and I said, listen, this is what's going on, but this is going to stop. You're not going to, and I went down the list, and it was a list. I went down the, the whole list. You are not going to do this, 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 and this anymore. If you do, you will go home. Do you understand? And he looked at me and he said, yes, I understand. What do you understand? And he repeated verbatim what I said. He went right down the list, the whole thing. I said, good. So I turned around to walk back to the office, and I turned around, and I saw him walking straight to the girl's dorm. And I called him out. I said, come here. Come with me. And I was, I was irate. I mean, I was, I was losing it. I really was. And walked into the office. I went straight to Charlie's office with him, sat him down. I said, Charlie, here's what's going on. And went right through the whole thing. And, I, and Charlie, you know, I wish you guys could be in there sometimes when he is dealing with things like this. For years, I was with him doing this for years, and he would always look at me at the, at the end of his explanation to the student, and the student had no wiggle room after it was over with. I mean, the wisdom that came out of Charlie was always just incredible. And he would always look at me and say, Kelly, do you have anything to say? And I'd look at him like, are you kidding me? Like, what else is there to say? No, nothing. Amen, I agree with it. And that was about it. Well, that day he looked at me and he says, Kelly, do you have anything to say? Yes, I've got something to say. I looked at him, I said, have you lost your mind? What the heck's wrong with you? What do you think is so wonderful about you that's blessing this girl? And I just laid into her, and I found out later that the secretaries outside said they were herding students out of the office because I was just too loud. And Charlie said, Kelly, I thought you were going to come out of your chair. I just, it, something happened to me, I just snapped. And so Charlie looks at me, and he says, well, Kelly, what do you want to do? I want him to go home. And Charlie says, okay. And I said, now. Charlie said, all right. So he was a local student. We had, he had to call his parents say, come get me. So we packed his bags up. His parents called me the next day. Kelly, listen, this is not what our, brother, what our son is like. I said, you could have fooled me. I said, look, I understand. I, I, I am, I'm a parent as well. And I understand what you're going through. And I do sympathize with that. I'm sorry. But these are the consequences, and he understood, what the, he understood what the consequences were, and he freely made this decision. So we're not going to go back on it. And they said, well, we, we respect you making the decision. We respect you, but we don't agree with it, but we, we understand. Thank you for your time. All right. So they sent him off to tech, and he got kicked out in three weeks for doing the same thing. 
there are consequences for our decisions. And we've got to come to terms with that. These people are enemies of this master. They, they, they oppose him and he deals with it in verse 27. Their, their wording is interesting to me. We do not want this man to reign over us. Which reminds me of the words of the crowd in John chapter 19, verse 15. We have no king but Caesar. In verse 14, it says that they hated him. Well, we know in John chapter 15 that Jesus says that the world hates him. And also, he adds to it, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. And so in verse 27, we see their destruction. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary puts it like this. A distinction is drawn between the reproof of a servant and the execution of an enemy. The judgment of believers for reward and that of the oppressing world for condemnation seems to be distinguished here. There's two thrones that we know of from Scripture. There's the great white throne judgment. There's the passages for it. There's the judgment seat of Christ, the passages for that. You read through like we did for, for in 1 Corinthians 3 a little earlier, and we see that this, this judgment, this, uh, the judgment seat of Christ is one whereby he is giving the rewards or taking away what we think was ours. It's not a reference to salvation, but it's a reference toward rewards or the lack of reward. But then there's the great white throne judgment and basically, in a nutshell, it's the judgment of, you know, eternity in heaven or hell. And it's a, it's a sobering thought that there are consequences for our decisions, whether we are believers or not believers, that the Lord must deal with us. So where do we go with all of this? We're living, it's been pointed out that we're living today between verses 14 and 15. Our master has gone, but he's returning. And we're to be busy with what he has given us. We have been made complete in Christ, and we're to be busy in this life of Christ by faith. The faithful, reliable servant is not one who is sitting around just getting by waiting for some day, but one who is actively living in all that the Lord has imparted to him in every situation. Major Thomas once said this, all that he is is all that we are. We can never have more and need, and need never enjoy less. Just receive and say, Thank you. Colossians 3, verse 17 puts it like this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Any thoughts? There's kind of a vagueness in my mind right now about 
Well, we know in Colossians 2, the, uh, Paul tells us that we have been made complete in Christ. So we have been given the fullness of his life in us. And we're to be busy by faith in that life. At what? Busy at what? At whatever, his, whatever he's working in us by faith. We're busy whether we are doctors, lawyers, housewives, carpenters, whatever we are, we are busy trusting him with what he and his sovereignty has laid before us and not trusting ourselves for what we have before us. Okay, so the will of the Father is the commandments, do you agree? I think that will... Like go out and feed the hungry and the widows and the orphans. And yeah, and James says that pure and undefiled religion is the care of... of of, of the widows and the orphans, yeah. Yes. Okay. okay. Any other thoughts? Yes, ma'am. Um, I think one of the things we have to touch on is the legitimacy of the authority. And I think, especially when you get to it, when he's, he's, uh, he's dealing with his enemy, if he doesn't have the right to rule, then he can't. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, appreciate that. The legitimacy of his authority. Yeah. Yes, sir. I just think there's a parallel in Psalm 2 with the world saying he cast off his fetters and cords from us. And that's kind of where we are here. And he's sitting on his throne. He's already picked his king. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Is that it? Okay, then let's pray and we'll be done.